Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. Again, just to remind you what we're trying to do in this podcast is close the gap between New Testament or critical, even Old Testament, but scholarship of the Bible and what we know to be true in the church. Um, Because sometimes I think scholars are dismissed as, well, they're just a bunch of cranky old men and women, you know, and they can't turn off their critical minds. But I've discovered most scholars in my own experience, you know, to study and learn under them, but also to read their work, good many of them, they see their scholarship and service of their faith. That's the first thing. It's like, wow, really? I, I just thought you all were just trying to destroy the Bible, and they're not. They're simply asking questions that the Bible itself, the Scriptures, provoke that as lay people, we just don't, huh, I've never thought about that. So I know sometimes when we ask these questions, at first blush, you'll go, first of all, I've not really thought about that. And the second, wait a minute, is that heresy? <laughs> to even ask a question like that. Well, of course, you know, we believe God is the author of all truth. We believe his, the scriptures are inspired word of God, and he's got nothing to hide. And so there, there, we don't need to be fin- defensive about these things. And often some of these questions provoked by the scripture end up functioning like a thought experiment, you know, like, huh, I wonder why that's not in the scriptures or why does this happen? So that's what I'm trying to do, because for me, critical scholarship, believe it or not, is the more I got into study the Bible, the, the more I read, the more I learned, the more it helped me grow spiritually. And I'm hoping that's what this podcast will do for you. Okay, so here's the, <laughs> after that setup, right, here's the semi-heretical question I'm going to ask. And again, these are things that scholars, yeah, 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 you know, we've dealt, we've, we've kicked around this can, you know, we beat around this bush for decades. But it's kind of astonishing when I ask the question, was Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ? Now, before we start recording, I mentioned Josh, you know, I'm going to talk about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've heard Christians say, you know, wasn't he one of the 12 apostles? And that, you know, or even recite him, you know, who are the 12 apostles? Well, it was it was James and John, Matthew. It was Paul, you know, Thomas. Ed, you, well, wait a minute. No, Paul was not one of the 12 apostles. And that that is significant for a variety of reasons I'm going to come back to in a minute. But have you ever noticed how often Paul has to defend his apostleship to his own converts? Now, that is rich. Why in the world would a bunch of Gentiles who have believed the gospel and a church has been formed, say in Corinth, why would Paul several times in both of our letters why would he spend time defending that he's an apostle? And so he says it explicitly in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You know, he say, am I not free? This is 1 Corinthians 9. Am I not an apostle? Asks the question, and he expects, yes, I am. And then he says, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Then he says this, verse 2 is very revealing. If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So I want to come back and talk about why his own converts questioned whether or not he was a true apostle. 
and sometimes you can he implies it in his letters and what he seems to be arguing against or how he's defending himself may give us insights into why his own converts. But that one line, if to others I'm not an apostle, and that should ring alarm bells. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you mean to others you're not? Who is he talking about? Why would there be Christians who would question whether or not Paul was a true blue apostle? I mean, you know, he contributes almost a third, you know, or at least a fourth, somewhere between a fourth and a third of the New Testament, for goodness sakes. Well, of course, you know, for the longest time, Paul's letters were really not, you know, they, they were seen as important letters to certain churches, but the way in which those letters eventually become scripture is a story that takes at least 100 to 200 years. All right, so... And when Paul writes his letters, he's not thinking, okay, I'm going to write scripture now. He's writing a letter. And how do we know that? Well, because at times, like in that same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he'll say, now what I'm writing to you is I don't have directly from the Lord. It's not a command of the Lord. This is my opinion. And yet, isn't it strange? When we read Paul's opinions, we take it as, rightfully, I believe, rightfully so, as God's word. So... Why would there be people in Paul's day that questioned whether or not he was really a legitimate apostle? Okay. Well, we can read in his letters other places where Paul himself calls out who he thinks are false apostles. He does that in 2 Corinthians Uh, chapter 11. He refers to them as people who preach another Jesus. These are false apostles who, he says in verse 13, are, this is chapter 11, who disguise themselves as apostles, and they are indeed Satan, as if they are indeed Satan who disguised himself as an angel of light. So, oh my goodness, Paul was quick to point the finger at some who claimed to be an apostle, and yet Paul says, they're not. And yet what seems to be happening in that environment is there are some pointing the finger at Paul saying, oh yeah, well, you're not an apostle either. So that, of course, provokes the question. When Paul says, yes, I'm an apostle, well, it begs the question, okay, what does it take to be an apostle? Now, nowhere in Scripture are we told, okay, here are the requirements of being apostle. We do know, however, that the gospel writers, when they tell the story of Jesus and his ministry, at times they call the 12 uh, men who followed him disciples, and that word really means students or learners, mathetes, which we get our word math from it. So they're they're students, they're learners. But Luke is the one, and I think it shows up in other Gospels as well, but especially Luke, who at times will call these 12 disciples, he calls them apostles. Because the Greek word apostello means 
basically one who is sent with the message and basically faithfully delivers it. A good synonym for apostle would be emissary, one who goes to deliver a message on behalf of a person to another group of people, and they carry with them the authority and power of that person, that office that sent them. That's what an apostle is, an apostolate one who faithfully delivers the message. So it makes perfect sense that when Luke talks about, and he's anticipating, of course, he's, he's not just writing the gospel uh, of Christ Jesus, chapters you know, 1 through 24, he, it's, it's apparent in his first volume that he has ideas about writing Acts. So he almost seamlessly moves from disciple to apostle seeing how Christ not only sent the 12, right? He sent them out to recover the lost sheep, according to Matthew's gospel, to do his work. And especially once he was resurrected and as he ascended, he sent the disciples out as my witnesses, Acts chapter one. They become apostles, apostles, emissaries sent with a message. But interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 1, we are told that Peter gets the disciples together, and he basically says this. This is my paraphrase. Look, you know, Christ chose 12 of us, and one of them, one of us has given up his inheritance, speaking of Judas. And so... And that, that's even fulfilled scripture. So we need to have someone who fills Judas's office that can occupy this ministry, it says in verse 25, and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. So although Luke doesn't mention it here, you do have other places in the Gospels, and even in the Revelation of John, where the 12 apostles play a significant role in the kingdom to come. You've got Jesus saying to the 12 disciples, look, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And some scholars think, indeed, that's why Jesus chose 12, as you might say, the head of the new 12 tribes of Israel. He's reconstituting Israel. He's recovering the 10 lost tribes. So there's significance in the number. And as he reconstitutes, reestablishes Israel around him, he basically says, these are the 12 elders of the new Israel, the 12 apostles. And he tells them, you're going to sit as judges in the end, in, in the uh, eschaton. But also, you have very clearly in Acts chapter 1, Peter thinks we need 12 disciples. We've only got 11. And uh, he says we need to find someone to replace Judas because he gave up this office of apostleship. Now, here's what's curious about the story. They say, well, you know, who should we get? And this is my paraphrase, you know. But Peter says, okay, look. Let's talk among us, because we're told, you know, there are about 120 disciples gathered there who are following Jesus in verse 15 after his ascension. So they're gathered together, and, and Peter says, this is what we do. 
and I'm sure it's of the 120 who are here, how many have been disciples of Jesus from the beginning to the end? That is, from the baptism of John, that witnessed the baptism of John, of Jesus, right? Saw the dove, heard the heavenly voice, and was walked with Jesus, walked with us all the way through until not just the resurrection, but the ascension. And toward the Lord Jesus went up and was taken up from among us, verse 22. You go, wow, that's amazing for two reasons. One, there are members of the 12 disciples who would not qualify given that criteria. Matthew, we're told very plainly, you know, Matthew was uh, called by Jesus to be his disciples after several days, maybe even weeks after Jesus launched his ministry and found a few disciples, James and John, Andrew and Peter. And we can read from John's gospel, there were only a handful of disciples that actually witnessed uh, Jesus uh, being baptized by John and being baptized by God, by his spirit. Only a few. So think about that. There, there's probably 12, the 11 disciples sitting around going, wait a minute, I don't qualify. <laughs> but Peter lays down the requirement and they all agree. And here's the second thing that's fascinating about this. They have two disciples who qualify. Wow. Of the 120, and there were quite a few followers of Jesus. We tend to think of the only Jesus had only having 12 disciples. No, he had several disciples, women as well as men. Here are 120 disciples that witnessed the ascension. They're gathering in a room to replace Judas Iscariot, waiting in Jerusalem for the spirit to fall as Jesus predicted. And two men qualify. It's Here's why this is significant. You would think at that point, Peter would go, oh, we got two? Well, okay, Baker's dozen, you know? 13, what's wrong with 13? We might as well have 13. I mean, because one of us may not last long, right? Uh, um, and yet they don't say, oh yeah, 13 will be good. No, 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 we've got to whittle it down. Why? What does that imply? Well, if we hear any echo of Jesus saying the 12 apostles will sit as judges, you know, on thrones in the eschaton, in the world to come, then we got to have 12 apostles. So even though two qualified according to Peter's criterion, they divine by, perhaps by the Spirit, by casting lots, who should replace Judas Iscariot? Now, there's something else telling about Acts. So in, in, as Luke tells the story, he centers the beginning of the church and its movement from Jerusalem all the way to, you know, Cornelius, a Gentile, almost kind of fulfilling the missionary agenda. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And Peter is the main spokesperson. And it centers around the apostles in Jerusalem and the witness they, uh, they, they gave as a testimony to who Jesus is and what they saw with their own eyes. And then all of a sudden, 
as Luke tells the expansion of the church and the, the witness of the apostles and going from Jerusalem and driven out by persecution to Judea and even going to Samaria, the, the seven, the, the magnificent seven, as one scholars call these seven who end up helping the uh, apostles, Philip being one of them, and he takes the gospel to the Samaritans. All of a sudden, of course, Luke introduces him in chapter 9, but all of a sudden there's this stranger, Saul, whom Christ calls to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And lo and behold, beginning with chapter 13 to the end of the book, it's like the second half of Acts, Luke centers on the important role that Saul, his Jewish name, Paul, his Roman name, played in this agenda of Jesus to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Paul is the one God calls to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He says it plainly. I'm going to send you to be, to preach to the Gentiles. And yet, Luke reserves the word apostle for the 12. He doesn't ever really call Paul an apostle, which is fascinating. So, that's the first, perhaps, reason why there were some who questioned the apostleship of Paul. There can only be 12. We all know this. Luke tells the story. But Paul claims, wait a minute, I'm an apostle too. Even as Luke records, right, Christ commissioned him to take the gospel to Gentiles. And for Paul then, he claims his credibility as one of the apostles. He's not, you know, one of the 12, but he still claims, I've been commissioned to take the gospel like an emissary. It's the resurrected Christ who gave me authority to take this gospel to the Gentiles. And I witnessed uh, the resurrected Christ. Now, the problem for Paul was, oh, really? So you were a disciple of Jesus when he walked the earth? Well, no, not really. Oh, so you saw, you witnessed the resurrection of Jesus when he, you know, the day after or the day they discovered him to him? No, no, it don't, wasn't there. Oh, were you were there when he ascended to heaven and to take the right hand of God? No, no, wasn't there. Well, wait a minute. How could you claim that the resurrected, you were a witness of the resurrected glorified Jesus when you weren't there. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, oh, well, he came to me, he says, although I was born at the wrong time. He appeared not only to the 12 apostles, Peter, he appeared to James, the Lord's brother, which is a whole other mystery of how James came to be, you know, a Christian, because he was someone who, like the rest of Jesus's earthly brothers, were suspicious of him. Try and he tried in John. They tried in John's gospel to goad him to go to Jerusalem because there are people who want him dead. And all of a sudden, James appears in Acts chapter fifteen as the unquestioned leader of the church of Jerusalem. It's like, whoa, head snap! Wait a minute, I thought Peter was the spokesperson. Now here comes the brother of James, who's ruling about whether or not Gentiles have to be circumcised. That's really interesting. So nowhere in the New Testament are we told how James became a Christian why he changed his mind, other than Paul says the Lord Jesus appeared to James and the rest of the apostles, he says, and he appeared to me.
as one born at the wrong time. He so that's why he mentions in 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Plus, not only does he say the Christophany, the appearance of Christ on the Damascus Road, that's what gives him the authority to claim, I've seen the resurrected Lord, because he had, heard him, saw him. But then he also says, are you not my work in the Lord? Meaning, look, I'm an emissary. I deliver the message. And the fact that you believed proves that I've delivered the gospel to you. This church wouldn't exist if I were not an apostle. As a matter of fact, he says in 2 Corinthians 3, you are my letter. You know, I don't need letters of commendation from the pillars of Jerusalem like he talks about in Galatians 2. You know, he, he basically says in 2 Corinthians 3, you're my letter. You, and here he says, you're the seal of my apostleship. Um, that's because the fact that a church existed in Corinth proved that Paul delivered the message of Christ. So, why would others question his apostleship? That's the first question I want to try to answer, given this background. And the second question I want to try to answer, why would his own converts question? When they, they exist, these Corinthian Christians exist because Paul was a faithful apostle. Okay. So why would, why, would be, why would there be some in the church who were suspicious of Paul? And, of course, you see that they were right away in Galatians. And in Acts as well, Acts tells a story where when Paul's converted, there were early Christians that were, were hesitant to receive him. They thought he was a spy. Why? Paul admits this. You know, he was someone who wasn't just a casual observer. He hated early Christians. He was so convinced that they are preaching a message that's heretical, that a, res a crucified Messiah could be indeed the, the hope of Israel's glory, that he, according to Galatians and Acts, you know, he persecuted Christians, stood there and watched Stephen get stoned and approved, tried to drag people Jewish Christians out of their homes and take them back to be tried before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So Paul even says several times in his letters that he has regrets over that, that he once killed Christians. And he readily admits there in 1 Corinthians 15, as well as in 2 Corinthians 11, he admits he's the least of the apostles. All right. So... Is this an act of self-deprecation? Is he just saying, well, you know, I know I'm not that much to brag about. Or is Paul basically revealing a twinge of, yeah, I get it. I get it why people question who I am, question I'm a real apostle. Even the early apostles were, were hesitant to receive him and welcome him, and yet it took Barnabas to introduce him. And the pillars of the church finally accepted him, according to Galatians chapter 2 and Acts as well, chapter 9. So even though the pillars accepted him, James and John, um, Peter, there were others evidently who were very suspicious of him. Why? Well, there are probably a variety of reasons, but I want to point out one in particular. Paul preached 
that Gentiles can be a member of the new covenant, the covenant that God has established through Christ, which was really a completion of the old covenant, that God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of a multitude of nations, not just the father of Israel. And the question, of course, was, well, how do, how do Gentiles come into that covenant blessing? Well, God gave Abraham the right you to do this for all your male descendants. This proves that you agree to this covenant, and that was circumcision. And Paul preached a gospel that told Gentiles, you can be sons of Abraham. You can be members of this covenant that God promised Abraham but you don't have to keep the right of circumcision. That caused Jewish Christians to go, wait a minute. How, how in the world can you say these Gentiles when God himself is the one who told Abraham, right, this is not a right that men would think up on their own. <laughs> you know, God said, this is the proof that you're keeping the sign. This is the sign of the covenant. And Paul's preaching a message to Gentiles. You don't have to get circumcised. Because in Paul's day, there were a group of Gentiles that are called God-fearers. Acts talks about them. Who, who worshiped the God of Israel, like Cornelius. They worshiped the God of Israel. They kept the dietary code. They kept the Sabbath day. They probably sent their money to the temple. They were a Jew in every respect of the word. Like Cornelius, they prayed at the Jewish times of prayer. In every respect, they're living the life, the religion of Judaism. They're devoted to the God of Israel. They've forsaken their gods, and they're exclusively worshiping the God of Israel, except they have refused to do, they, they've decided they're not going to do one thing. Guys like Cornelius and these God-fearers wouldn't get circumcised. Josephus talks about these people as well. Because there was a social stigma about, I mean, what a, what a, why would you need to do that? I mean, there were some Roman moral philosophers that said, well, the reason Jewish men are so um, circumspect about sexual immorality that they don't that they're not really guilty of that of sexual license is because they they've they've mutilated their flesh so they really can't i mean that's and so jewish men earn the reputation of being very morally strict compared to the romans so there was a social stigma attached to circumcision and so these god fears and they wanted to, you know, be included, but they didn't get circumcised. And by the way, Jews in Paul's day debated, are they saved to use Christian language or not? Are they children of Abraham or not? And a, a more liberal Jew like Philo says, yeah, yeah, they've been circumcised of the heart like Moses talks about, like Jeremiah talks about. Yeah, yeah, they may not be circumcised in the flesh. They're circumcised in the heart, and that's all that really matters. There are more conservative Pharisees who said, no, if you're not circumcised, you're not of the covenant of Israel. You're not a child of Abraham. And by the way, there were some Gentile men who converted to Judaism to worship the God of Israel that submitted to circumcision and did other things as part of their moving from an old life to a new life. But there are a good number of them that would not. So here's Paul preaching a message to the, uh, about a Jewish Messiah who's come, that you can find forgiveness of sin, you can become children of Abraham, receive the covenant promise of God, of his blessing, and the hope of eternal life, 
of resurrection through him. Preach the whole gospel and good news. Here's the good news. <laughs> you know, obviously this is just a masculine issue. Jewish women didn't have to worry about this. Gentile women did, but men did. Good news to the Gentile men. And even if the God-fearers who gathered in the synagogues heard Paul's message when he preached the gospel in the synagogue, good news, men, you don't have to get circumcised. Paul's critics said, no wonder your churches are growing like crazy. You're watering down the gospel. Now, Paul has to write an entire letter to the Galatian converts to basically to convince them to stop submitting to circumcision. So some, some of these even own converts begin to doubt whether or not, and we don't know really who influenced them, but we can talk about that another day, but you know, it, it, some of them thought, you know, maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I'm really not a true Christian. And evidently, there were some in the Galatian churches, some of these Gentile men, they got circumcised. And it made Paul madder than a hornet. He said, that's not the gospel I preached to you. That's not the Jesus you heard. That's not the gospel message. You received the spirit without circumcision. Why would you think you need to get circumcised in the flesh? So the whole letter is Paul you know, basically just really angry, trying to dissuade them to continue to submit circumcision. Because the way he sees it, if you get circumcised, that's an exit right from the church and an entrance right into Judaism. You've cut off Christ. Dramatic language. When you mutilate your flesh, Galatians 5. Okay. So what would Paul's opponents say to that? These who question his apostleship. I can imagine some of them said, well, Paul, what makes you think you know the gospel of Jesus Christ? You claim to preach it. You didn't follow him. You don't quote him in your letters. You don't quote a single parable he told. You know almost nothing about his life, it seems. So why in the world do you think you can preach the gospel of Jesus when you never heard him and you didn't follow him? Maybe your gospel isn't true. And of course, for Paul, oh my goodness, if you question his gospel, you're questioning him. If you question the integrity of his message, then you called into question the credibility of the messenger. That's just the way he thought. For him, they're one and the same, the emissary who delivers the message. So there were critics of Paul who probably, and there's evidence of this in his letters, who questioned whether or not Paul truly preached the gospel of Jesus. You know, how could Paul say, imitate me as I imitate Christ? When he didn't know Christ in the, as he walked the earth, he didn't know what, how Jesus lived every day. How in the world can he preach the gospel of Jesus when he had never heard Jesus preach? Hear the problem? Now, several times in Paul's letters go, well, you know, and this is a whole other question maybe we can talk about another time. But so where did Paul get his gospel? You know, if you're sitting there going, huh, I never thought about that. You say, well, well he'll, he could just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, they weren't written. 
The earliest gospel is probably Mark. And according to the fathers, early fathers, those gospels weren't written until after the apostles died. Like, you know, the church tradition about Mark is that he took down Peter's recollections just before he was executed by Nero or shortly after, published that gospel. So think about this. Paul ministered his entire life from the time of his Damascus Road experience, that Christophany, all the way into his martyrdom, according to church tradition under Nero. Nero got Peter, Nero got Paul. They had him executed. He ministered his whole life, probably around over 30 years, okay? Never having in his hands Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So the question is, well, what did he preach? I mean, he can only give his personal testimony so many times. And he does repeat that when you read Acts or in his letters. He does talk about that, about his Damascus Road experience. That was formative for him on so many levels. But uh, you can't help but wonder, wait a minute, where did he get his gospel? So in his letters, he basically speaks of two sources. And we really see three, maybe even four. And we can talk about, I'll, I'll do a podcast on this sometime later, just kind of drilling down in the source of the origin of Paul's gospel. And by the way, this has been a huge scholarly question for over, about 100 years. I mean, this is one of those things that scholars go, are you going to bring that up again? Okay, let's, let's talk about that. Because sometimes scholarship can reveal some kind of new insights. But the origin of Paul's gospel is, a, is a, one of those kind of common questions that go with the whole question of the credibility of his apostleship. Well, he says in a couple places, like when he tells the Corinthians how they're supposed to observe the Lord's Supper, and they say, you know, on the night he was betrayed, and Paul tells the story of the Lord's Supper, and it's, it's really close to what Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us. And he uses language of, I, re, I delivered what I received. And the language he uses there is kind of common language to signal, I got this, um, you know, from a reliable source, oral tradition. Because the gospel, you know, existed in oral form long before it was written down, obviously. So it's quite apparent that Paul must have heard from the disciples, the 12, the apostles, what they knew about Jesus. One scholar famously said when Paul goes and meets the pillars of the church, in, according to Galatians 1, he was there for two weeks. They didn't talk about the weather. And so there are these embedded in his letters references to receiving traditions and passing them on, not only in chapter 11, but also 1 Corinthians 15, the heart of the gospel, as he calls it. That he's been faithful to carry on what he heard. And yet he also says this, and this shows up in Galatians 1. And, and Galatians 2, he received a revelation directly from Christ. So he claimed that Christ is the one who also taught him the gospel. Now, we don't know what that looked like or what that, you know, how that happened or when it happened, but he claims ongoing experiences of Christ, several Christophany, and um and, and he claims spiritual insight. As a matter of fact, one place, I think it's 1 Corinthians 14, where he says, do not, basically, don't question what I'm writing. 
what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. I mean, he at times really puts his foot down. So even says in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, you're seeking for proof that Christ speaks in me. Paul believed that Christ spoke through him, that he received revelations for Christ. So he learned, you might say, the basics of the gospel, the life of Jesus through the apostles. But he also claims to receive spiritual insight from Christ himself, from the spirit of Christ. Also, um, it's apparent in his letters, and he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, that he, when he reads the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, he sees the gospel everywhere. He sees it in Isaiah. Oh, my goodness. He quotes Isaiah all the time. Isaiah was Paul's favorite prophet. So when he reads the Hebrew scriptures after the Christophany, it's like the scales have fallen off, you know, literally, but also spiritually. And now he sees the gospel everywhere. So when he reads, for example, part of Moses's farewell sermon in Deuteronomy 30, when he says, no, don't say the law's too difficult for you. Paul reads that, and you can see this in Romans 10, as as insight into the gospel. Don't say the gospel is too difficult for you. Isn't that interesting? He says in 2 Corinthians 3, you know, when Moses has read, his Jewish kinsmen can't hear the gospel. That's obvious to Paul. So scholars have pointed out, not only does he have oral Jesus tradition, not only does Paul you know, have his own insights and spiritual experiences and revelation. But thirdly, the Hebrew scriptures were a huge source for him in unpacking the significance of the gospel. So that is a huge topic that scholars kick around. How could Paul preach a gospel that he went from Jesus when he didn't hear directly from him when he walked the earth or didn't have literary gospels to read, and how could he say imitate me when he you know, didn't, never saw Jesus perform any miracle, or 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 how he treated the poor? He doesn't. He didn't see it in, with his own eyes, but Paul believed he's in that the 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 credential, the credibility, the reason why he can claim to be an apostle is because. He was commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel message. And this is what he says in Galatians 2. And this gospel message he proclaimed, basically the, the brothers, the pillars in Jerusalem said, yeah, that's it. That's good. And they basically divided the labor. Paul will be the apostle for Gentiles. Peter will be the apostle for Jews. So he laid before them the gospel he preached for years at, by that point. And they agreed. All right, so that's kind of hitting the highlights of why some might, you know, Paul's opponents question his apostleship. Why would his own converts? Because several times in his letters, he has to defend his apostleship. He has to defend it to the Galatians. He has to defend it to the uh, to the uh, Corinthians. You see, you know, other kinds of defense in other places, like he has to defend himself uh, to the Thessalonians. Why is he constantly doing that? And this is, uh, this is uh, perhaps a subject for another episode one day down the road. The reason his converts questioned that Paul was a true apostle and questioned his message is that they believed the message that he preached. 
They just didn't believe that he lived out the truth of the message. They questioned the credibility of the messenger because of his life. And you go, what? What do you mean? Boy, you see it all the way through 2 Corinthians. Paul admitted that his life looked like failure. It looked like God was against him. It, he was a crackpot. He was constantly being forsaken, lived, you know, below the poverty, nearly died, stoned. You know, he, he chronicles all of his hardships, which he's not bragging. He's, he's telling to the Corinthians who held him in contempt because he doesn't, he doesn't look in any way, shape, or fashion like the other apostles. He's not successful. He's not honored. And therefore, they say, you know what, if that's what the gospel, if your gospel, Paul, that you preach does that to you, if that's your life, we don't want it. We want a victorious gospel. We want a successful gospel. We want a, a gospel that makes our life look better, not one that looks like yours. Where Paul admits in Galatians, you know, he bears in his body the, the stigmata of Jesus, his life looked like the cross, looked like the curse of God. But Paul said, I'm proud of that. I boast in that. Because to me, the cross of Jesus Christ, the necrotic effect of his death is life on the inside. I may look like a mess on the outside. <laughs> he admitted it. Yeah, I'm a crackpot. I'm horrible to look at. Talks about in Galatians 4, you know, did, or Galatians 3, rather, and 4, you know, how they received him. Uh, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not much to look at. But on the inside, Christ is renewing me day by day. And Paul believed in a crucified life and something the Corinthians did not want. And according to Paul, says, well, if you don't want an incarnated gospel, if you don't want a gospel that is lived embodied in you, you need to be reconciled to God. You're missing it. I think maybe today, and, and others have speculated about this, what if the Apostle Paul were to show up today? There are many other reasons why his converts question whether or not he's truly an apostle. Evidently, he was not a very good pe preacher. He wasn't good on his feet. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter too. You know, and he talks about it as well. And they, they held him in contempt for writing these long letters, but that is his personal presence is contemptible. His speech is, you know, horrible in 2 Corinthians 10. There are many reasons why the Corinthians were offended by him. They basically go, you're our apostle? Gee, thanks. And that's why he goes, fine, fine. Yeah, I'm the least of the apostles, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm the best you've got. And I wondered if Paul were to appear today, I don't think we would be impressed with him. I think we wouldn't, you know, he we would be basically uninspired because he wouldn't be very articulate. He wouldn't be very persuasive. He would look like a, someone who's cursed by God. Probably, you know, all kinds of physical maladies. He was a mess of a man. We, it would be hard to look past the outer appearance and see the heart of a man who was who gave his life to Jesus Christ because in America just like the Corinthians we're easily fooled by appearances
Yes, Paul's an apostle. Here's how we know. We have his letters to prove it, and we exist. We're a bunch of Gentiles, after all, who believe the gospel message today because there was a man 2,000 years ago that heard Christ tell him, go preach the gospel to these people who seem to be on the margins, the Gentiles, the leftovers. Well, I hope that helps. Perhaps I've brought up maybe some questions you want to think more about. And I would encourage you to read the scriptures, some really good books on this. And I might put a few, have Josh put a few in the show notes, but I'd recommend. Um, But anyway, the apostleship of Paul is an important question, not only for the first century church, but even for us today. Well, thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We look forward to having more conversations as we consider what you didn't know about the Bible. Mm -hmm.